It's the only bit of uh, Johnny Be Good here that's actually recognizable. Right. Welcome to the 80s, people. What year was this? 87. 87. It basically sounds like every Billy Idol song. Would, would Simon Phillips playing drums on this? Would... I have no idea. Yeah, because he, he drummed for them for a while. I, I love that. I love him as a drummer. Doesn't quite have the original melody, does it? Well, I don't remember Judas Priest having any melody. Completely different music. Uh, um, is there some subliminal message in here about somebody trying to kill themselves, or is it is a song, or is that another Judas Priest song? <laughs> Johnny, be good, yeah. I mean, it has like the DNA of Johnny, be good in there somewhere. Matt, I've never heard this song before, but um, I mean, I know the original Johnny Be Good, but why are you playing this to me? I just have a but Because it's like the worst heavy metal cover ever. It's uh, it's not even the worst. It's 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 so banal. It's, yeah. Yeah. What, what I mean, what is his? Morris is mystified. What is his his point here? You know. Johnny, be good. Oh, here comes the 80s breakdown. Is he going to do the... It's like a compendium of like every 80s heavy metal cliche. (laughs) Yeah, the whammy bar. It's like a computer, you know. He's going to do some... uh, Some hammer... Some oh, Van, some hammer Van Halen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Let it rip, baby. Yeah. Oh, get get my air guitar out. <laughs> Just a little Glenn, soft, you know. Glenn Tipton was the guitar player. And KK Downing. Uh, yeah. I mean. This is not even like phoning it in. This is like smoke signals it in. It it, it, it was Roger Glover producing them. I have no idea. Yeah. Roger Roger Glover's guitar solo. Yeah. Oh yeah. I wonder if Chuck Berry ever heard this. I'd be scared to see what he would think, although I'm sure he's cashing the checks. I wonder if Rob Halford was uh, in full leather when he sang this song in the studio. <laughs> well, I think they might have recorded it in Ibiza, so I think it was required oh, oh, to be in full oh, leather. Or oh, 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 he was just like in sweatpants and a, you know, like, <laughs> a sweatshirt, you know. Or just the full regalia. 
Yeah. Or maybe tennis whites. Yeah. You know. I think he just knocked this one out on the way to the court. <laughs> yeah. Oh, key change. I think it's like the sixth key change. Uh, does this song end soon? We, uh, I think it's just having an incongruous fade out. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. He didn't know how to end it. So here's Matt, some that, here's some key things. That was that was terrible. I mean, I, I, like I said, I'd never heard it before, and um, I actually wish you would have played it to me beforehand, so I could have said I don't want to listen to it again. So you could have opted out. I could have opted out of this. Yes, of the you. worst heavy metal covers. Yes, welcome to Disinfect, where we air out the worst songs in music. And today we have a very special special topic. It's a very unique topic: the world's worst heavy metal covers. Johnny Be Good. That's you know I can't say if it's the worst. It might be my least favorite, personally. That's why I chose it. I mean, what do you, what do you hear in it that's just atrocious? Having just heard it for the first time, everything. Oh, come on. I mean, so so it it is. <clears throat> Johnny Be Good is a rock and roll classic. Um, it has a structure. It has a beat. It has a rhythm. It has a very has distinctive a, melody, and, and it has a purpose. Right, this has no purpose. It has no right to be even recorded. Um, so um, again, I'm going to blame it on the person who is always responsible for bad covers, the A and R man. So, well, in fact, the, the it, history behind this song is okay. Um, it was, I believe, it was 1988 when they recorded it, and um, Judas Priest was sort of at a funny point in their career. They were popular, but artistically. They were very popular. Artistically, they were sort of searching. Um, I think, I they, think were, they were always searching. No, I'm yeah, a big no. Jews Priest fan. <laughs> I mean, I love the classics. And and and, and as and as I uh, the classic. No, no. And as I as I <laughs> no, I'm serious. I love Judas Priest. And and also, I would say, and I say this later in the episode, I think they actually did the best heavy metal cover, which is the Green Man Alishi with the two pronged crown. Oh, they, they they covered Fleetwood Mac's Green Mile Yeah. So oh, the original please. was a oh, blues God. rock classic with uh, the uh, great great guitar Peter playing Green. Peter Green. Peter uh, Greenbaum. Yeah, he really went on to influence people like Jack White. Um, Carlos really, Santana. Carlos Santana. He was really considered perhaps the greatest blues guitar player next to Clapton. And, and, and his guitar, the Greeny, his Gibson, the Greeny, was passed on to many great people, including Gary Moore had Greeny. Kirk, Kirk Hammett actually owns Greeny right now for right. Metallica. He, he owns it now. Yeah. Keeping it metal. Yeah. Um, Sounds right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, Judas Priest, late 80s, kind of at an ebb. The young heavy metal kids were sort of coming up behind them. They were sort of fighting for their artistic identity while sort of trying to stay popular. And um, someone asked them to write the credits song for a Anthony Michael Hall um, flop called Johnny Be Good. That's why they did it. Okay. Desperation. Yeah. Um, And uh, (laughs) it sounds like a a song tossed off for a Anthony Michael Hall flop, basically. Well, well, there you go. And it was probably at the advice of some A&R guy. Yes. Um, And I mean, again, again, some, some key points. If you have like three key changes in a cover that weren't there in the first place, Maybe you're doing a disservice to the original song. So, so my question is, um, how how much did Rob Halford's belly protrude over his leather pants at this point <laughs> in the? Because it, as he got older, 
the belly got bigger and well, I, the pants I, got tighter. I don't and want it just good. And then he got super skinny, right? Well, I think um, I think he this was at the peak of his addiction issues. Um, so it was again, rock Judas stars Priest was have not addiction good. issues. Well, the thing that we've discovered about heavy metal covers is they don't exactly represent a band at their peak. It's a desperate move. It's a it's filler. It's a you know trying to tap into some nostalgia and get on the radio, or you're doing uh, the credit song for an Anthony Michael Hall um, yeah. movie. You know. Yeah. Uh, but what's what's interesting is that you could say arguably that heavy metal came out of covers. Um, you think about Blue Cheer doing Summertime Blues, um, Vanilla Fudge doing um, Supreme songs, um, you know, and then you and then you get onto Led Zeppelin, who essentially were covering blues songs, correct? And, and they they sort of went on to uh, influence really the, the the next waves of heavy metal, along with people like Black Sabbath, who were. Yeah, Black Sabbath. I think I think was smart enough. I don't remember any covers Black Sabbath ever did. Oh and no, I Deep think Deep Purple. No, the Deep first, Purple didn't do covers. No, Deep Purple did a couple. Black Sabbath. I think their first single was a cover, and then they were like, "That was horrible. Never again." They got talked into it by their manager, and it was, like they almost, you know, they almost failed right away. Well, well there's, there's a Black Sabbath connection with Judas uh, with Judas Priest because they were managed by Iommi Management, which was Tony Iommi, the guitar player from Black Sabbath. The things you learn. Yeah, well, I, I'm full of useless information, Matt. Um, in any event... And then Roger Glover produced, I think, their biggest album. Roger Glover was the bass player in uh, Deep Purple. That is correct. Yeah. So so the thing is with heavy metal covers, I mean, heavy metal is maximal. It's 11. Everything's on 11. So if you do a cover and you're going in the wrong direction, it's on 11. You're heading towards Shitsville anyway. You're, you're halfway there. You're propelling yourself. Mm-hmm. You're rocketing yourself to Shitsville because it's just, you're just blasting. Um, you know, there have been inspired heavy metal covers, but the bad ones are bad. So we brought in some experts. Well, uh, I'm not an expert. N- not, on, not on heavy metal. <laughs> not on heavy metal. Sorry. <laughs> not on bad heavy metal. Not, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, uh, now, admittedly, Morris has seen Sammy Hagar pre-Van Halen live. I like, saw Sammy Hagar, yeah. 15 times. Pop and I want. I saw Iron Maiden with the original lead singer. Paul Diana. I'm a fan. Yeah. I saw Saxon. Like in like, I mean, I, I saw. Okay, all so those you have some metal cred. You have some metal. I cred. have. I saw all the. They were terrible, but I saw. Yeah, I saw all those bands. Yeah. In any event, we brought in some experts uh, to help us here with this theme. That's not me, by the way. That's I'm not, not you, expert, yeah. um, Tom Bojour, <laughs> who uh, is a longtime music writer. Tom just put out the book uh, "Nothing But a Good Time," which he wrote with a guy named Richard Beanstalk, and it's a New York bestseller. And it's the oral history of hair metal. So I figured, wow. Jesus, we got to get this guy. I right? won't be reading that. And then, um, uh, no, it's a great book. It's so funny. I, I'm sure it is. It is hilarious. I'm just not a, I'm just not a hair you metal fan. You don't want to find out the nuances of, of Warren's career? I have no... How Cherry Pie came to be? Not, not no, do not. No, no. And then... You, and can, then, you can give me the, uh, the, the, the sort of potted version of that sample. And then our second guest uh, is Catherine Turman. She wrote with um, John Wiederhorn, perhaps the greatest history of heavy metal. It's called Louder Than Hell. And it is a comprehensive oral history of the whole genre, soup to nuts. It is one of the greatest books I've ever read. 
Um, she also produces Alice Cooper's radio show. She's the newest editor of Spin. And she's been a totally credible journalist for as long as I can remember. And, uh, but, and, uh, yeah. and she's going to lose her credibility by doing our show now. Well, so. yes, they, they agreed. They have no idea. They actually, yeah. They didn't know. They didn't know um, how this could affect their careers. Right. Yes. So yes. Uh, without further ado, let's get heavy with Tom, Catherine, and Disinfect on the worst heavy metal covers. The worst. Introducing our esteemed guest today, we have my dear friends and colleagues, Tom Beaujour and Catherine Terman. Both serious authorities on heavy metal with the bibliographies to prove it. Our guests today have quite multidimensional careers. Tom plays with a lot of people, messes around with Not A Surf a lot, and he's a pretty major producer. So, Tom, who's been in the studio when you're not writing heavy metal oral histories? Uh, Juliana Hatfield, um, currently uh, a member of... Guided by Voices doing a solo record. I'll probably get in trouble for saying that or doing some solo work. Okay. Uh, but, um, you know, a lot of sort of indie rock that is uh, 90s uh, directed or whatever or sprouted from. Seems to be the demo that of, of people come to. A great new band that I did last year called um, Long Neck, who are great. And then a lot of projects with the comedian Dave Hill who uh, is sort of um, – so I'm in a comedy metal band with him that I also have worked on recording called Witch Taint and then a psychedelic rock band, Painted Doll. So a lot of, a lot of work with him for TP Records because he's – pretty much they put out whatever he does. So, you know, keeping busy. Okay, back to your metal bona fides. Tom here is the co-author, along with Richard Beanstock, of the bestseller Nothing But a Good Time, a most fascinating oral history of hair metal – which features many of the artists we'll be discussing today. Tom was also a founding editor of the heavy metal mag Revolver and is a serious figure in the world of guitar journalism. Catherine, as well, is a devil-horned big cheese, in addition to serving as a writer and editor for esteemed pop culture journals like Rolling Stone and Spin. With co-author John Wiederhorn, she wrote Louder Than Hell, the definitive oral history of heavy metal, which is true to its name. Uh, it is definitive. Uh- Catherine's book, Catherine and John's book is, is the, the, the shizzle fizzle net. Catherine as well has expanded mightily into other mediums besides print. In addition to her career as a college polo player, it was recently announced that she will serve as story producer on the Metallica podcast, an eight-episode insider look behind the scenes of the making of Metallica's classic Black Album. She's also worked on Sharon Osbourne's TV show and has produced the syndicated mainstay Nights with Alice Cooper on good old-fashioned radio for as long as I can remember. <laughs> Terrestrial AM, FM. We still are. Yes, old school. And again, thank you for coming to spread knowledge here on Disinfect. Thank you for having us. Okay, so let's get into it and start airing out the worst heavy metal covers. So what makes a good heavy metal cover and what makes a bad one? What do you think, guys? I think there's there are a couple things that it needs to do. I think a good heavy metal cover needs to most importantly take a song, especially if it's here here's the I'm gonna qualify this. A good heavy metal cover of a non-heavy metal song. Cause I think that that's really where the rubber hits the road. Um you know, that's where the rubber hits the road. Like uh so that it has to take the original song 
which was not in this medium, you know, and somehow make it fit within sort of the constraints and the tropes of, of what heavy metal is. So you've got to take a song that could have any number of dynamics and you're going to have to make it like deal with heavy metal drums, heavy metal vocals, heavy metal guitars. And that can have wonderful effect. Like that can really make something really cool or as we'll discuss when we get to the worst songs, it can make even a good song just leaden and, and, and just dumb it down incredibly. So you really, it's really the act of transferring it into the heavy metal genre and somehow amplifying the qualities instead of dumbing something down. Catherine, what's your take? (laughs) Uh, I don't know if I have any deep and meaningful thoughts. I agree with what Tom said. Um, I mean, I think the tendency is for people to cover artists they love and influence them as teenagers. And that definitely, as we will see, may not be the best song for their voice, for the style. So I think that's why there are so many horrible covers. They're like, this band person's song made me who I am, so I'm going to pay homage to it uh, with my own version. And uh, it doesn't always work, but they don't care because it means so much to them. So out it goes, and here we are talking about it. Even the same band can do a terrible cover and then a sublime one. I mean, I think of Motley Crue here. I can't really stomach smoking in the boys' room when it comes on the radio, but then, whoa, who expected they'd kill their Beatles cover? Helter Which is amazing. I have a, my thought was going to be, there was, I don't know if it was a, a time period, but there was a thing where bands were having their first hit on a cover song, and for some reason I remember Orgy doing Blue Monday. <laughs> yeah. And that was kind of all they ever had i hate to say it sorry guys um yeah so yeah i just remember when that came out and then now thinking back i feel like there were a ton of bands who released and i would be interviewing bands or talking to bands and personally i think my least favorite heavy metal cover is your mama don't dance by poison i mean they're covering a soft rock loggins and messina song (laughs) it's so saccharine and shamefully nostalgic and so on metal, I mean, it's both filler and, and it seems like a shameless chart grab. Well, I think I, I think what you're, I think that the thing about these songs, though, right, like "Smoking in the Boys' Room" and and "Your Mama Don't Dance," they weren't actually, they weren't filler. If they were filler, they wouldn't have been singles. The thing is, is like really, what you've got is it's it's and and I think really very much with the the quote-unquote new metal bands in the 2000s. You've got A&R guys, you know, people pushing these bands to get something on the radio. Yes. I mean, Van Halen's cover of You Really Got Me communicated a sort of generational shift. There was really kind of like no going back after that. It was, it was pretty bold. Yeah. The kinks. But it was also serving commercial concerns, too. I remember reading a Van Halen hagiography recently, and Eddie Van Halen talked about a big schism he had with David Lee Roth about doing covers. Eddie felt like the band needed to showcase its originality, but Roth apparently had a theory it was easier to make a song a hit when it has already been a hit. He's sort of the Andy Warhol of hard rock, basically. Eddie Van Halen, he actually disavows Diver Down because it's essentially half covers. And I mean, whoa. Van Halen had some great covers and some not so great ones. Yeah. It's much 
easier to market a familiar song. Like to get it on the radio, to market that song, you know, someone at Capitol and like it, the aesthetic value of Poison's Your Mama Don't Dance is, is, is one question, but someone at Capitol was like, we need something like that, like something that's a classic rock, blah, 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 blah. And the shit did go the distance. You know what I mean? Like it, it was a huge hit. So the cover is also a way to like reach back to a, an older demographic and to like ease something in to onto the radio. Per, yeah. Particularly like the, the new metal bands, like, you know, and the reason that all of those bands like static X, I was looking it up. I mean, like all of the, all of the new metal bands led with covers is because that music was not very melodic. You know, there was nothing else on those, one of those records to like get it to sell a million records. And that was, and it was still a time when you needed to sell a fucking million records. Yeah, that makes sense. Can I curse on the? What was the Static X cover? I don't remember. It was. Oh my God, they did a Poison cover. Push it? They did a lot of covers. Wow. Oh my God, I can't even find it. Um, Moving on. But, but leave it to say that, I mean, some bands did like Korn had hit the, the, a lot of the lesser and I'm sorry, sorry, Wayne static. May he rest in peace bands. They just, they didn't have the, the tunes. And like, I think these labels, they're signing these bands. They're like, I got to get something on the radio. You're going to do smooth criminal or, or you're out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Although in, in our book, in our book, uh, Mitch Snyder, the publicist, uh, the Greek who was, did a lot of the hair metal bands, talks about going to visit the band on the road. He's trying to put a, a, like a, together a bio. And he asked Bobby Dahl what his favorite band is, the bass player of Poison. And uh, Bobby Dahl's like, oh, Foghat. So like, and he's like, what? he's like, what? He's like, Foghat. So, I mean, these are people, a lot of people in, in, Hard rock bands are also people who really did grow up on, you know, whatever the radio station in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania was playing, you know, like that's could have been Loggins Messina. Who knows? Like they've, I mean, know. I grew up listening to the locomotion. And did, did Susie Quattro ever do a cover? I don't think so. Did she? I mean, Little Eva did it originally. Susie Quattro? I don't, not a cover. Can the Can, 48 Crash, Devil Gate Drive. I can't think of a... No, I don't think so. So I'm curious when you cultural historians think this whole tradition of the heavy metal cover began. I mean, if we posit hard rock as the forefather of heavy metal, maybe the first such cover was the Vanilla Fudge having a big hit with the super heavy for the time version of the Supremes, You Keep Me Hanging On, which kind of made their career. I would give you that. I mean, it's a tradition that really began at the inception of the genre. I mean, I think most people consider Blue Cheer's super heavy cover of Eddie Cochran's Summertime Blues to not just be the first heavy metal cover, but perhaps the first heavy metal song, period. I would say so. You know, in The Who, I mean, even The Who's version of Summertime Blues is this, sort of the same deal. I don't know if Blue Cheer were doing The Who doing the song or not, you know. What's interesting is not just how terrible so many heavy metal covers are, but how good some of them are. I mean, Judas Priest's cover of Fleetwood Mac's Green Man Alishi with the two-pronged crown is not only sublime, but it sort of allowed Judas Priest to define their sound and show a link to their influences 
and how it came to form heavy metal. I was going to say at the time that they did it, it was before Judas Priest was wearing leather. It was when they were wearing kimonos and they were more, they were still hippies then a little bit. So uh, I have a question for actually both of you guys. I'm sure all of us have interviewed Rob Halford many times. I, I, I don't remember that I've ever asked him why Green Man Alicia. I think I asked him why Diamonds and Rust, but I don't remember. Do you know why they... Judas Priest's cover of Joan Baez's Diamonds and Rust is another one. I think Rob Halford's okay. sister played it for him for the first time when he heard it. Sister? And it's so genius because the original is a real 60s folk song, and they just transformed it into something so heavy and so masculine. That showed the break between the hippie culture and the new heavy metal culture that was coming around the corner. Yeah. It was not the 60s anymore, is what that basically said to me. I'm a little bit mentally stuck on hair metal these days, or glam metal, but the whole... The whole genre is owed to a cover, you know, the, basically, and everyone in our book credits them with it, Quiet Riot covering Come On, Feel the Noise. Is That is the song that made hard rock marketable again, where it was a pariah for, for you know, five years. Basically, in the late 70s, no one wanted to sign, you know, everyone thought after Van Halen was signed, that all the other hard rock bands were going to get signed, especially the guys in LA. Like the guys in Dockin are already there. Everybody's fucking in band switching around. And they're like, we're all going to get signed. Van Halen got signed. This is going to be amazing. But nobody gets signed because really Van Halen was signed. And this is in Ted Templeman's book. When they get their deal, Warner Brothers is signing Eddie Van Halen. They're like, we. this is the next Jeff Beck. This is the next John Coltrane, even like that's really what Templeman says. Like, we need this guy. We might fire the band. So after Van Halen gets signed, they, all these bands think they're going to get deals. You've got even Twisted Sister on, on the East Coast. And nobody does because really what is cool is a new wave. So people want Elvis Costello, the Go-Go's. They want the Knack. And the entire hard rock genre is viewed as like dinosaur music. You know, it is viewed as passe, not commercially viable. Um, if you were in another LA band and you were like, whoa, Van Halen's getting huge, that you would think like, well, we'll probably be next. I'm not saying that you would actually be right, but you can see where you would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but like literally what happens is like this guy, Spencer Proffer, who's like this kind of on the outs, weird producer guy who I believe had done like one Tina Turner record, the Acid Queen record. Here's, here's the Slade version of Come On, Feel the Noise on the radio. And he's like, I need a fucking band to cover this song. This is the song. And he asks around. People are like, oh, there's this band, Dubro, Quiet Riot, like that's kicking around. You should have them do it. Anyway, he rolls up on Quiet Riot. And he's like, look, I will do a whole record on spec with you. But you got to do this song. And they had got they had like three Japanese records out. You know, it, but they were going nowhere. They're going no, and so they go do this record, and they do come on, feel the noise. And you know, depending on who you ask, they tried to throw the game and do a shitty job of it or not. Like depending on who you ask in in the band, um, Spencer Proffer has like a deal with Epic, and he goes to Epic with this Quiet Riot record, and they're all like, he sits in a room with them, plays them the record, and they're like, no. They're like, this band is terrible. We do not want this record. So he's like, you guys gave me a label. 
you trust me, get in a cough, I think, I think. Um, just put out this record, please. Just put out this record. And lo and behold, Metal Health, with, uh, on, the, uh, on the strength of a cover of Come On, Feel The Noise, knocks Synchronicity out of the number one slot. Like, so th and that's the beginning of the entire sort of glam metal decade in terms of like labels being like, okay, we're signing Rat, this band Twisted Sister that nobody wants to sign, we're going to get them. <laughs> you know, and that's how it – so it all started really with a cover. I was just going to say, I, I heard all the, I heard pretty much the same story that Tom told, but that, you know, Kevin really did not want to do the song and Frankie was trying, the drummer was trying to get him to do it and we just started playing. And then he did toss off some vocals and that might be the one they ended up using, like you're saying, trying to do the shit version so it won't get used. And what I was going to say about Quiet Riot, weirdly, I saw them when they were Dubrow at the Troubadour with the Cavazzo brothers. Yes. She is old uh, with, with what's uh, uh, Carlos Cavazzo and his, Tony, his brother, I guess, were in the band. Um, and I never saw them. I knew the record was number one and it was the first metal record to go number one, but I never felt they were big. Like, I don't even think I saw them other than that one show. I don't remember them at the forum or anything like that, though I know they must have been, but to me, they didn't loom that large. Do you think Quiet Riot's career was affected by leading with a cover like that? Did it hurt their credibility ultimately? I mean, the Beatles and the Stones are the greatest rock bands in the world, and they started their careers with covers. Why couldn't Quiet Riot do that with a cover in the new era? Was it just not metal enough? Was it cheesy? What? Well, they certainly weren't able to, like, sustain it. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was. Exactly. The second Slade cover. Yes. I think Mama, We're All yes. Crazy Now is, that's, a, is, yes, that's is crazy. also a Slade cover. You know, they were desperate when they went back to the well like that the second time. I mean, why not yeah. try Slade's only actual U.S. hit, Run Runaway? <laughs> Admittedly, Slade did have a pretty extensive repertoire of European smashes, but it, 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 did, it just seemed desperate. Uh, well, I was going to say... I'm from Los Angeles and I don't feel, I mean, at the time when I started writing, it was the hair metal era, which is why I'm in Tom's book as well with a, a few quotes. Um, and I don't feel that a lot of the bands that I interviewed, which was a lot of, you know, everyone from here, I'll throw some names out. Trickster, Cats and Boots, uh, oh, Kicks. Well, they, yeah, they were from Baltimore. Yeah, they were always kind of cool. Yeah, I don't feel that a lot of the bands that I interviewed at the time were into hip hop and rap. Um, but again, there was there seemed to be a big divide between uh, L.A. and New York. And I've talked to Dee Snyder about this. You know, he like the New York guys definitely were into that. And when he came to L.A., he felt it was like a whole different world when he first came out with Twisted Sister. I mean, maybe the greatest heavy metal cover ever is a cover of a hip hop song. I'm talking about when Anthrax covered Bring the Noise by Public Enemy. It was both a smash and sort of this important culturally defining moment. It sort of started a new chapter for heavy metal, in a way. But, uh, no, I mean, the thing with, too, with, oh. I, and I don't know if we have to disqualify Bring the Noise because it's actually a collaboration. I don't know. But, but, but those guys, I mean, the thing about that, I saw that tour, like at the Ritz, I think, with, with Public Enemy and... Uh, yeah. And like the thing about it was that these were clearly also people who were like you're saying they were from the same kind of from the same hood or whatever. They were totally comfortable with each other. Like there was no like there was no like 
fetishization on the part of anthrax like who look what's this what's this hip-hop thing and like you know or like it was really it was it's funny because like that was great and like in 1983 i think i saw this i saw just this is not about covers but i saw uh african bombada open for public image limited at the beacon right after that awesome i mean that that song um world destruction is like one of the great yeah, no, but at that show, Africa Bombada opening for Public Image like five years earlier, he Africa Bombada is getting booed off the stage. Like it was like it was like get get the boop off the stage. Wow, that's crazy. Probably Metallica set the state of the art for the heavy metal covers with their Garageing series. You really got a sense of what that band was about, who their influences were, what audiences they were identifying with. It was not a commercial grab. It seemed no. sincere and credible. I. Th- I I I think another thing about heavy metal covers, which is like something that they've been used for, and sort of t- springboarding off of your, off of the the Anthrax, Public Enemy, Bring the Noise, is it's a really good way for hard rock bands to tell a story about who they want to be, like to like telegraph. You know, and some bands have done it really well. Like you see, I was like looking through metal covers, but when you really look like how smart the Guns N' Roses Spaghetti Incident covers record is, you know, this record comes out in like 93, right? I think roughly I'm like going to look at my notes. I think it's 93. Um, When the shit is really hitting the fan for hard rock bands, you know what I mean? And, And for them to go out and do a record that has like, Johnny Thunders covers and you know I mean there's there's a couple of other yeah UK subs and um a professionals like the Steve Jones cover and like yeah and like to position like that's a great and say and it's the same thing Metallica did with Garage Days they position themselves as like we're the thrash band that knows about the cool stuff you know what I mean? And I think it's, it can be very, very valuable for a, a hard rock band when they do it well to like, to, to sort of lift, you know, show under the hood. Like these are, infl- look, look, we're listening to this stuff. We're not listening to, you know, like I, I'm hip to the dolls. I'm hip to, you know, Diamond Head, to, you know, or whoever it is. So I think it can be a really good marketing and positioning thing for a hard rock band. And when they do the right thing and they pick the, the right cool cover and then they don't fuck it up, it can be a really good thing. I remember hearing Metallica cover Discharge and wearing Misfits t-shirts and thinking, these are my people. And like when Duff would wear TSOL shirts and Guns N' Roses videos, you didn't see White Lion doing that. I think Duff is your man in that case. Izzy and Axel, they had great taste in punk too. They were into all the early stuff like the Pistols, stuff like the New York Dolls for sure. Yeah, the, the Damned and Dead Boys and all that stuff. And he was in punk bands before Guns. So I would imagine it was him. But I don't know as much about Izzy since he has not done an interview in 90 years. I took Garage Inc. as really a tribute to Cliff Burton. It was like Cliff gave the rest of Metallica a broader sonic language to play with, which is what made them stand out. I mean, he got Heffield into R.E.M. and shit. Well, and he was the cool guy in Metallica. I mean, he was the cool guy. Yeah. Let's get to the bad shit. My least favorite heavy metal cover is Judas Priest's absolutely atrocious version of Johnny B. Good. Wow. I mean, they changed the music. The vocal melody is bizarre. I've never been able to understand why they could... Was it for a movie? Yes. Mm. For one of the worst films ever, 
also titled Johnny B. Good, starring Anthony Michael Hall and I think Uma Thurman in her feature film debut. It has literally the worst line in film history, too. At one point, Uma looks meaningfully at Anthony Michael Hall and says, Johnny, be good. I mean, awful. <sighs> I wonder who wrote that, Jim. So Judas Priest covering that in that context made no sense with their original audience. I mean, I didn't even know who they were trying to reach at that point. Exactly. I also think Judas Priest had spent a year out of their minds on drugs and booze in Ibiza trying to make a commercially successful follow-up at a funny time in their career. It was sort of the beginning of the end of the 80s moment. Good, good pronunciation. It makes me think you've been there. I bet they would say the same if you were to ask. No, I, I think if you were to say that to them, they would agree. I'm, I'm sure they would. I don't know about the Abitha part, but it's, it's. Probably, I mean, they look. Those are guys. I mean, those guys probably did grow up on this stuff, though. You know, what I mean, like they're not that much. Are, are they really that much older than the Stones? I mean, younger than the Stones. Those guys in 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 Priest. Come on, it's bad. I mean, really bad. You know. It's true. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying, like, it is It is a bizarre lapse of of judgment. There must have been something else. I mean, look, Judas Priest is one of those bands that made it out. It's kind of like the Kiss thing, right? They kind of made it through the 80s by the skin of their leather pants. Like, you know, they weren't really, like, again, when I, I, I name-check parental guidance, but that's, like, really, like, Judas Priest being like, fuck, we need, like, some, we need to go pop. You know, they, they, they were big enough and, and, and bad enough, like bad in the good way to make it through. And then they actually make painkiller and they're fucking like pull it back together and stuff. But like they were floating. I mean, I think they could probably still fill arenas, but they were, you know, and a lot of like, like Black Sabbath, you know, a lot of those bands did not make it through that era. So they were probably flailing, and you you don't even know they were they might have been like, look, you're doing this song, or you're fucking dropped. Like they weren't bulletproof to that, you know. So what are some of the others? Sim- sympathy for the devil, or they do sympathy for the devil. What about Motorhead's version? <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it in a? Uh, I think it was in a weirdly a car commercial. They did it in 2015. Motorhead covered it on the on the Bad Magic album but i'm pretty sure it was in a uh a commercial the other anyway no my other my insight which is like a complete scene switch was you know so matt sent us this very long playlist of covers to check out and a lot of them because this is something important just about the present state of heavy metal covers you know a lot of it was just like not very well-known bands doing very well-known songs. So, but now the problem, there's a whole, it's a YouTube. Basically now heavy metal covers have become a way to game the streaming sites. Yes. It's all algorithm metal. You can go on to spot. You can go on to Spotify, Apple music, wherever. And there's literally a heavy metal version of everything. So if somebody puts the Bee Gees in the search engine, someone doing a heavy metal version will come up in the results. Yes. And then someone will be curious and click on it. It's about clicks. It's literally heavy metal clickbait. And then on YouTube, because when people search like, you know, uh, oops, I did it again. And if if Children of Bodom comes up, then. But yes, I mean, that's a whole new reason for covers now is like if you Google on YouTube, you know, and if, if somebody gets, you know, if you get, if the, if the bot, sends a hundred thousand people to your 
to your cover of of a popular song, you know, that's a couple bucks, especially if you recorded it in your home studio. Yeah, and it's a whole new it's a whole new era of heavy metal covers has spawned from that. I mean, how can we forget Motorhead's cover of David Bowie's Heroes? Genius. Rob Zombie is definitely a repeat offender in the heavy metal covers arena. I mean, dude has covered Grand Funk Railroads, we're an American band. Brick House by the Commodores. And what's probably his native, his version of Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. Yes. I mean, I have to say, uh, again, that's, uh, that's, he's an East Coast guy. I'm sure he worshipped them. He probably knew the guys. And he did that because he loved them. But, and, but he did it in his own style, and it just did not work. Rob Zombie, you know, does not translate to a, a two-minute song, uh, no matter, yeah, just doesn't work. Even, even if Sherry Moon is dancing, you still, still can't stand it. Okay, let's get to your choices of the worst heavy metal songs. Catherine, you chose Danzig's cover of Aerosmith's Lord of the Thighs. It beat out Life of Agony's cover of the all-time new wave classic Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds, which is a serious achievement. It was. And you know what? There's Again, I was going to say, just as a journalist, we know most of these people. And so I think about them and why they did it. And that plays a teeny bit into my decision. So I'm not completely objective. I thought about Keith Caputo, who became Mina Caputo in Life of Agony. And I'm like, you know... The song was overwrought and dramatic, but it, and I have my own connection with the song, of course, because of the movie, The Breakfast Club. And so I had so many things playing into my choice that I decided to give it a pass because I was too involved in it. <laughs> so uh, when it came to picking dancing, uh, I am not emotion. I, <clears throat> uh, Lord of the Thighs, which could be a chicken commercial, maybe. I'm kidding. Um, uh, the beautiful uh, Steven Tyler uh, and Aerosmith did it in 74 on um, Get Your Wings. Lord of the Thighs wasn't a huge commercial hit for no. Aerosmith per se, but it was definitely a fan favorite. Yeah. It has a lot of credibility as a hard rock classic by any yardstick for sure. Yes. A great cl- I, again, I don't know if, if the casual radio listener might not even know the song, but I mean, it's a concert staple. It's, you know, it's not... I don't know. Where does it fit between, like, Toys in the Attic? Is that more well-known than that? I don't know. It's in the top ten. It's in the set list. <laughs> right. Early. You're right. Okay. Well, I think it's time to actually listen to Catherine's choice. Shall we hear Lord of the Thighs, as desecrated so memorably by Danzig? Is there a pillow on that drum? I mean, I have to say the produ- the production is abysmal. Like the pro- actual production is not good. Down a who knows who, just a socialize. Oh. I'm waiting for my girls when you call my eyes. Turgeon. Turgeon. And it's like a one take vocal. Yes. I think. It's like a demo. Yeah. I mean, he sounds drunk. Well, I wish he was drunk. Well, well, hell out. What do we got here? 
they've, they've lost it here. They just... They're destroying the rhythmic pocket, which is so tight in the original. Yes, exactly. It is ripped. The pocket is ripped open. And plus, this is like one of those times where like the, the interplay of the guitars in Aerosmith records is some of the best ever. It's it's disgustingly good. Like it's it's insane. I was listening to Toys in the Attic the other day, and it's like this is the best two guitar, and there's none of that. It's all gone. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, like, with this song is, like, why would you put this out? It's, it's, it's a weird thing, because I, I feel a little... This is awful, and it's a valid choice, but I feel like we're shooting a large tuna in a small barrel. Like, it's like... <laughs> Too easy a target? <laughs> Catherine, do you know, is dancing an Aerosmith fan? Like, do you think this is from love or just like? I don't know. I I, I wouldn't imagine. I mean, if we're going to talk dancing, love, obviously we need to talk about Elvis and that covers yes. album and how he chose obscure records. I mean, obscure songs, which is fine, but I don't like that Elvis record, though I was looking forward to it. I feel that Steven Tyler has a always a sexy, winky sort of, you know, salacious thing, and this has no dirty sexiness. It just has a dirty nothingness. This is supposed to be the best part of the song right here. Like I don't know how you're if you're Glenn Danzig. Like you literally find a dude who sounds like he's fucking in the corner at Guitar Center to be your guitar player. <laughs> like, he's got to pay enough. It's probably not that much. Just uh, before we get into Tom's truly awful uh, contribution, um, what was up with Lord of the Flies? <laughs> thighs, thighs. There were flies thighs, flies. around it. I mean, okay, I'm going to put it like this. Part of why Van Halen was awesome was because David Lee Roth like thought he was Frank Sinatra. He understood, well, he was a fan of Frank Sinatra's, but he understood that there's a difference between singing a song and interpreting a song. Aha. Uh -huh. Right? Right. He transformed things that you would not expect he was capable of doing, and he made them unique. Danzig, I think Danzig considers himself a song stylist, like Elvis, like Frank Sinatra, like David Lee Roth. But uh, I mean, I think I think again, covers often reveal too much about yourself at some point. 
Also, I think if everyone in your band is worse than the guys in their original band, like you got to really come up with something interesting. Like they, yeah. there's no one in that in that band. You know, there was no thought put into it. It's. I don't know if there's rehearsal put into it. It's really like one of those things. It's like going to shoot an elephant. It's like there's just like. I, there's no – the point – the problem with some stuff is just the utter pointlessness of it. Like and it's just – you know, it, it, Good and, point. You know, just like why? Um, they didn't go for something and and fumble. They did their most default rack They effect. didn't even go for it. Yeah. yeah. You know, they did, yeah. they did their yeah, – the basics. And then um, Tom was saying about Joe Perry. You can hear this on Aerosmith Records. Joe Perry is like one of the funkiest guitarists that's ever existed. Like he's all pocket. I remember seeing Aerosmith for the first time. And I was like, damn, this is like seeing like James Brown. Joe Perry. I've also seen Joe Perry blow Jimmy Page off the stage with the guitar solo. So Joe Perry is more than rhythm guitar. But Joe Perry understands like the James Brown, Keith Richards funkiness of rhythm guitar. So he's like, good. As and so does and Joey Kramer and also Steven Tyler as a former drummer, they all understand groove and fans of music made by African Americans. Um, yes. I mean, when you when you see Aerosmith, it's like Joe Perry is the bassist. He's he's setting the rhythm. So this is it's, it's completely incoherent. It's so bad, but then it's so Danzig. It's so metal. You know what I mean? Yes. As a metal fan, these are the kinds of things. And I, he's going to come to my house and kick my ass for everything that I'm saying here. But like, this is the kind of shit that put, knocks you back uh, us back a million years. Like, these are not the kinds of things that need to be done for us to then go out and tell people that metal is uh, like is awesome, fucking awesome, and smart, and the people are great. And like, and then it's like, well, well, what about Danzig's cover of Lord of the Thighs? And you got to be like. You know, you, oh, you had to bring that up. But, you know, again, I think I think this is a point that Catherine might have made earlier, which is like, we actually love all these artists. I actually yes. love that they they attempted some of these extremely awful things. We want Danzig to push the levels of taste. Yes. You know, if, if Danzig didn't make terrible horror movies and bad homages to Elvis Presley albums, it just wouldn't be Danzig. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, like you got to take the good with the bad. And, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's what it is. Why don't we, uh, let's get into um, Tom's cover or or least favorite heavy metal cover. Do you want to set it up a little, Tom? I'll set it up. So this song, which is uh, the Scorpions cover of the Who's Can't Explain, came out originally on this uh, compilation record that was part and parcel with the uh, Moscow Music Peace Festival, which was when all these bands, when Scorpions, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Skid Row, and Ozzy all go to to the then Soviet Union to play these shows. The first heavy metal concert in the Soviet Union. Right. And this was all part of a a sort of a plea bargain that their manager, Doc McGee, had done to do like an anti-drug thing because he got busted smuggling drugs, allegedly. Whatever. By the way, this so, is a fantastic the, part in Tom's book. It is amazing. So there's a. It's also in your book, right, Catherine? Don't you guys do this? We almost didn't do it because you did it so well. Oh, um, yes. But we were like, we got to do it. But um, there's a companion album called uh, "Stairway to Heaven, Highway to Hell" that comes out in 1989, and it's all bands covering songs of Boomer other classics. bands where somebody 
uh, or somebody who died. It's got to be somebody who died of, of substance abuse in the band. Oh yeah, somebody who died of drugs. That, by the way, let's just let's just let's just let's just marinate on this for a second. It's a concept album where every song is a cover where somebody died. Yes, that wrote it exactly of drugs Me, or alcohol. And by the way, and someone died of drugs or alcohol, and all the people doing the covers are massive drug addicts and alcohol. Not all of them. Yes. Many of them are massive <laughs> drug addicts yeah. and alcoholics at the time. Yes, they were doing blow on the plane to Moscow. So the Scorpions did, did, did this, and I, my reason for it being my most hated uh, metal cover is that I listen to Hair Nation on Sirius XM constantly because I actually do love this music as much as – it's the only thing that would get you through writing a book for four years about it. The Scorpions can't explain. For some reason, I guess the algorithm that programs Sirius XM has determined th- – this song is on all the time. Wow. It's on like you will hear it. and so it's it, to me it's like it's become this inescapable it's like riders on the storm on classic rock radio it's just like oh my god you know here it comes so, again yeah so so there's something about the frequency of it that is like has increased my animus you know um i'm sure that these guys grew up loving the who and that unlike the danzig cover it is not shitty from a lack of effort I slightly disagree with you, but let's let our ears decide. (laughs) Okay. The chug. See the chug? The obligatory heavy metal chug that is added to the riff has already destroyed it. The backing vocals that's, that do the can't explain refrain, which are one of the most important parts of the song, are not here. You know, you were saying like you thought that they loved this song growing up and there was sort of a tribute and homage to it. It doesn't sound like the singer has ever heard the melody before. Uh oh, Catherine, yes. <laughs> Air drumming. And the, the hook, like they added these hooks underneath the shit. It's like, there's this like ostinato. Oh, and this. Okay. Wow. Wow. That replaces. Pete Townsend's wonderful hook. Everything is wrong. And somehow the this incredibly catchy chorus is rendered non-catchy. Yeah, it's so flat. Yeah. And here we go again. Also, Roger Daltrey is one of the great 
singers of like, especially in his pre Who's Next youthful voice was like had pathos all the time, and there's none here. Well, and again, I think like Scorpion, like this is about like kind of young love, you know, like like and Scorpions, you know, Virgin Killer. You know what I mean? Like it's it's like. There's a kind of a coming of age vibe in the original. That's yes. that's. I wouldn't say it's innocent necessarily, but it's like it's tied to a real feeling, and it's like the Scorpions did just want to fuck. Hold on, here we go. Unnecessary blues flexing. Oh my god, yes. Which you really listen to the Scorpions for? Uh, extended. So yeah, that's my least favorite. Wow. Are you a Scorpions fan to begin with? I am not a massive Scorpions fan, but I am enough of a Scorpions fan. Okay. And I also think that they are oddly one of the most exceptionally exhilarating, at least they were when I saw them in 1989, great live bands. Like, no, <laughs> people, like just like they come out, they're giving 110%, as people say, the whole time. Um, Funny, I've never heard that. As soon as I hear his voice, I'm turned off. I don't like the band in general. So to me, that wasn't <laughs> that hideous. <laughs> so it was just like, Oh God, there's his voice. There's that guitar. There's Michael Wagner, whoever produced it. It's like, you know what you're going to get. It says the sting of the tail. And um, I'm, I'm just not a fan anyway. So to me, that wasn't horribly egregious, hmm. but that's because I'm coming from my perspective of, since I'm not a fan anyway. I go back and forth with Scorpions. Um, in uh, uh, Well, the town I grew up in Chicago was where Mercury Re- Records was based. And so, a lot of bands magically got on the radio in Chicago that were on Mercury Records somehow, mm. even though they never were on any other record stations. I don't know how that happens in the 70s. Um, but uh, so Rush was big in Chicago before they couldn't, you know, UFO, Chrysalis, Chrysalis and Mercury had something going on. So like Strangers in the Night by UFO, like was recorded in Chicago. Like, nice. you know. All these bands were big in Chicago because somehow the, the record company had influence on local radio. I don't know how that happened. Um, so, uh, um, Scorpions, I mean, again, like they birthed Michael Schenker. We can't deny that. Uh, you know, I think that they have. And Uli John Roth. Uli John Roth. Um, I think they have a certain power. As, as performers, you know what I mean? Uh, they've been playing uh, as, in a, as a band since 1961 or something ridiculous. Like, you know, it's really ridiculous how long the Scorpions have been together. Um, and where I, th- and, and I think where this song falls apart, especially is like Scorpions are Germanic. They're very tight. You know what I mean? Like you listen to any Scorpion song. It's like, it's got that like metal precision that, the, you know, and here they're just flailing. Like those vocals are bizarre. Like the blues, you know what I mean? And also you're dissing the blues thing. Like like Michael Shanker, his whole innovation in heavy metal was like bizarre, like Northern European romantic, melodic, you know, uh, strange. Like, like he could play the blues, but he was like another beast. You know what I mean? Like that, he was another animal. 
And, and that's what made them special. And so, you know, again, it sounds like a one take job where they really hadn't thought about it. Uh, I think, see, I feel like there's all these weird hooks. Like, I think they did. They were like, how do we make this our own? Like, because they <laughs> added all these hooks. In, in 20 minutes. Yeah, they added all these hooks, and there's all, like, it's a very well-produced song. This is where, going back to our initial premise, and, and the reason I, I this song bothers me, too, is that the early era of Who stuff, like, mm-hmm. I, I actually wept the first time I heard The Kids Are All Right. Or maybe it was the second. Like, that song is my favorite song of all time. Maybe like Tom, Tom like, is a major Who fan. This is true. Oh, yeah, I didn't so, know so that. Like, so just I think that that's the thing with you know when when maybe this should be you know we should end this as a teachable moment is like if you're a metal band and you're going to cover something especially that's not a metal song. I think that you need to you you need to look before you leap. Like the answer might not be like how do we turn this into a metal song. The answer is it that's not the question. The question is, you know, when we turn this into a metal song, are we destroying it? Like, can it be done? And have we done it? But I also think there's now pressure. There's commercial pressure. Like every metal band has pretty much released a covers album. Uh, I think Deftones released a covers album. Obviously Metallica. Um, one of my least favorite songs is, and least favorite covers covers albums, is um, Power Man Five Thousand doing Space Oddity on their copies, clones, oh and God. replicate. Yeah, uh, Ozzy. Ozzy did his influences, which was like you know, I can't even remember Beatlesque stuff, oh, yeah, yeah, probably yeah. Yardbirds, and um, yeah. Oh, here's a bad one. Here's a bad one. We're not going to listen to this in depth, but like. If you've never heard Black Betty by Ministry, oh my God. This is why actually, honestly, uh, you know, you had sent us a playlist. One of the covers that doesn't actually suck as bad as you think it would is actually Limp Biscuits Behind Blue Eyes. Hmm. I think it's totally, totally like, because they don't try and do Tom, this is a minority opinion. It's just him singing it. Not as well as, you know. As Daltrey, but still doing a straight, he's doing a straight interpretation with like Wes Borland doing some cool, like little noises behind it. It's not trying to paradigm shift. Right. And therefore, it does not commit any felonies. So I, I was just going to go down swinging for Limp Biscuit. Go ahead. <laughs> go, yeah. Well, did I send you? Did I say? I, 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 I wrote you an article about Limp Biscuit. Yeah. I wrote yeah. a cover story. I sent you in a limo, right? Right. No, no, that's a famous tip. What happened? Bank what happened with that story, which was amazing. That was the, that was when um, uh, Sharon Osbourne. We we were doing a photo shoot with Flint Biscuit, and we were late to Ozfest. Was it Ozfest that they were playing? Yes. And they and Sharon Osbourne was so pissed she unplugged them mid performance because they were going over, and they they showed up like half an hour late. I just want to go through some. Just we do have to wrap it up, but I think just I want to mention. Dragon Force doing Ring of Fire. Did you check that one out? I mean, wow, wow. This the, yours is a lot of your your list. I mean, your your playlist of bad covers. There are, I mean, an enormous number of 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 bad ones on there. Mexican Radio by by Celtic Frost. I mean, they, that was serious. That was not like an algorithm play. 
again, you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with the, 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 I think it's really about the arrangement and instrumentation. Like you can really fuck up a song by making it heavy. And like low rider by Exodus to me, it's great. I just, yeah, I, I like that one. I disagree. But I do I think, I do think what I per, per Catherine Exodus are California guys, right? You're going to hear, you're going to hear that song. You're going to hear low rider uh, right. growing up in California. And it has that kind of syncopated, you know, like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. and also I think that was sort of the era of like Red Hot Chili Peppers where metal dudes were like getting into the Red Hot Chili Peppers and sort of finding, they're like, we're going to get a little funky with this one. We're going to get a little funky. I don't know. So right. um, I guess the only, from the sort of the contemporary era, the thing that really offends me, and I think it's the band as much as the covers, uh, you know, Five Finger Death Punch, House of the Rising Sun. I don't, you know, I mean. Again, again, you know, and Ivan Moody can sing, but that's again, like the, the, the metal. I don't know that there were a couple ones on there. Was, was Testaments, um, Nobody's Fault on the bad covers list? Cause I think that's gr- a great cover. That, there are some, that and, and I don't know, I'm, it, it, cause I'm just going to defend these retroactively. I think Nuclear Assault's Good Time, Bad Times is really good too. You're or at least insane. it was when I was 15. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And hi. When I bought that record, I thought it was really good. <laughs> Not that I've discredited myself. Um, well, yeah, I, mean, you know, anyway. uh, I mean, it's funny how many covers of Anarchy in the UK have been done by metal bands. Uh, Motley Crue, Megadeth. I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Are there others? I, I don't know. Oh, Corn, Another Brick in the Wall. Oh my God. That's amazing. That is amazing. I think you need to do a companion podcast of of terrible punk covers because there's probably there are probably equal number of like of like no effects or other bands doing fucking things up in a very bad way. Carry on, Wayward Son by Anthrax. Wow. I mean, it's a very faithful version. It is very faithful it is. version. It's not. Yes. Yes. Um. So so I guess I guess. I guess what's the what's the takeaway? I think it's really like make it your own. I mean, you know, don't do what your A and R guy says because it's the hip thing, and Anthony Michael Hall is a big star. I mean, what's what's the takeaway after this deep analysis? Hey, just because you recorded it doesn't mean you need to release it. Is one. <laughs> you know, what I mean? self-editing. Um, if drugs and A and R is involved, consider. It's like when you shouldn't send the email right away. You should wait 24 hours. Yes. Well, yeah. And I guess the other thing, if you're doing a very well-known song, you're going to have haters no matter how good it is, which is, by the way, something Monster Magnet is has. It's not quite out yet, but they've done a whole album of very obscure psychedelic 70s covers. Uh, which like is by a band great. called Kuba and one called Dust. Yeah. So I think... That's kind of a good approach because no one knows the originals. Um, and so it's kind of like, it's harder to be judged <laughs> if you care about such things as a musician. Find, find yourself. Yes. I think there should be a checklist. And I don't know if we have the time to make it here, but like, of like, why am I doing, am I doing this to inform my fans? Am I doing this because. Right. 
I love it so much that it's just not, I can't resist. Like there's gotta be at least a couple reasons. Yes. Why you're doing a cover. You know what I mean? What is like, your raison d'etre? Yeah. It can't just yes. be money. <laughs> I, I like it that you, that, I like that you spoke French so that Tom would understand yeah. you. Yes. You know? Merci. We were trying uh, to hide from you. Man. But yes. <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, there's got to be, you know, and then, and then if you fall down, great. I mean, maybe some, I, I'm sure some of the ones that, that we've even slammed were done from a place of, of, of love, of, uh, of love. Yes. 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 Yeah. So, um, start with love, I think is the start with, start love. with love Yeah. and, and then, a reason and a purpose. And, and then don't strangle the baby by mistake. <laughs> Uh, oh, and how about how about do a second vocal take? Yes. Ah, yes. That would be that's another one. That's All right, I think we one. just need to end there. <laughs> Matt, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank fun. you, Catherine. Thank you, Tom. And uh, you know, as we say in the old country, metal up your ass. Disinfect was created by Morris Bernstein and Matt Deal. Produced by Sean Lewis and Esther Yoon. Theme music by Jeremy Clark, a.k.a. Mr. 66. Artwork by Bill McMullen, a.k.a. Millions Make Millions. If you want to tell us how much you love or hate, disinfect, or wish to purchase an extremely overpriced commemorative mug, oven mitt, or t-shirt, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and disinfectpodcast.com. You can also contact us at info at disinfectpodcast.com. Please like, subscribe, donate, all that shit. Thank you and see you next episode to disinfect more of music's worst songs. Wherever fine podcasts are shilled. Copyright Giant Steph 2020 and whatever other necessary boilerplate legal mumbo jumbo blah 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 you hear at the end of your favorite podcast. <laughs> <laughs>